Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Victoria Lupashku, one of the hosts for the Asian Studies channel by the New Books Network. Today, we are here with Dr. Huimin Lucia Liu, assistant professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at George Mason University. Hello, Dr. Liu, and welcome to our channel. Hi, and thank you. I'm, I'm really honored to have this chance to, to um, share my book with you, to talk about my book with you. Thank you so much. And we are honored to to have you. And, you know, I just from the beginning, I want to thank you for agreeing to talk to us about your new book, Governing Death, Making Persons, The New Chinese Way of Death, published by Cornell University Press in 2022. And, you know, I'll just start by um, asking, uh, you know, a general question uh, to get to know you and your work better. And I was wondering mm-hmm. whether you could tell us how you came to this project and, you know, what got you interested in rituals, death rituals to be specific, and in studying the intersection between politics, the market, and the construction of subjectivity in urban spaces in the People's Republic of China, um, just to, to, to be uh, specific. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That, that's all. It sounds like just one question, but there are a lot of questions there. <laughs> so, um, how did I start it? So, I got that questions a lot. I got this particular question a lot. Like, how did you start? Like, um, especially I'm from Taiwan, you know, a place that you know, ghosts is a very big scene. Like, everyone asks me, "Why do you want to study this?" Okay, so, um. So, uh, I mean, I have two answers. So, the first answer is kind of. And for kind of there's some sort of longer inference in the sense that I have always interested in death. Like one of my favorite um, TV drama for a long time is Six Feet Down There, which is a TV drama about American funeral home. And so, so do you know about that TV drama? Yes, I do. (laughs) So yeah, so so there's always this kind of quirky part about me that's always kind of find death is something very interesting that I want to to know more and, and and part the reason is at that point in my life there was there's also there was also an absence of death I have never really encountered death uh, in my immediate family I mean there was 
obviously that's occurred, but I was too young, so I don't remember anything. So anyway, so that's kind of the kind of just that's always been something that I'm curious about. But the, the more immediate kind of cause, the that the reason that kind of get me into study um of like a Chinese funeral industry. So it's so basically I was thinking about when was kind of one of the questions I was thinking about at that time in that summer, in the summer of 2008, is a different form of compassion. So let me tell you a story, like why I was interested in different form of compassion. So that was the summer I just finished my first year of PhD study. So I know I want to do field work in China for my PhD dissertation field work, but I did not know what my research topic is. So I spent the summer there kind of just you know, can get a feel of, you know, the doing feel. I'm not from China, so uh, so just kind of get a feeling of um doing um living there and doing and the potentially doing field work there and what are the interesting things I can um explore. So if you recall, um, two thousand eight, um, in June, there's these uh there was this very big earthquake, the Sichuan earthquake happened. So. Basically, I was in China about one month after that earthquake. I was in Shandong, very far away from the epic center of the earthquake. But because it was only a month after the earthquake, so like every day, you know, when I, so I was in a rural village and people very often gather around um, uh, 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 around a TV <laughs> and then all they, uh, everything they saw on TV is about earthquake. And I was in a village in Shandong, very far away from Sichuan. But that was kind of really the main thing people talk about and people watch from TV. And it was, and they show great compassion about what happened in Sichuan earthquake. And I, for me, that compassion, it's, it's more than just humanitarian compassion. That's definitely a part of. But there was a side of that compassion is 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 embedded in this very nationalist sentiment. So I was really kind of trying to. Uh, I was puzzled by this very nationalist form of compassion. And then so I was thinking, okay, what are some other form of compassion? And then that immediately got me think about, oh commodified form of compassion and part of the reason I thought about that immediately is just I before I went to um China I went um, I went back to Taiwan spent a couple weeks with my family and that was the first time um again from TV I saw a a basically a funeral um, company it's like a fairly big chain in Taiwan they put out this TV commercial which was, I mean, as far as I know at that time, was like the first of these kind. Like in the past, you don't have TV commercial of like a funeral companies. So, and, but so that that itself was kind of amazing. But then the second thing kind of caught my attention. Just, I was really puzzled is in Taiwan, that whole commercial is really, it's not about ritual expertise. It's not, it's, it's this commercial only is about one message. It's say funeral professionals, they are. They don't talk about business. They don't talk about ritual expertise. The only thing they talk about is how they help the bereaved family emotionally to deal with things at the the time of you know when they were very vulnerable. So as soon as I start thinking about different form of compassion, and then it just I just suddenly thought about that TV commercial I saw in Taiwan. It's like 
as like a great example of commodified compassion. So that's really how I. So I was. So I said, oh, yes, I want to know more about funeral industry, and then, and 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 then I start thinking about the reading I did in, in anthropology. Like, okay, what? I mean, that was two thousand eight. I was trying to think about what would the kind of funeral happen in China, especially kind of in in like in urban China. Um, and then that's when I realized that uh, most of existing literature on um, on funerals, uh, if we're talking about more contemporary time, they were primarily based in rural China, and there was very few works on urban China. And at that time, the only like article I can recall it's one of the article from that classic additive violin um, um, by um, uh, Ruby Watson and Jim. Uh, uh, sorry, so uh, uh, Evelyn Wasky and the, um, James Watson's additive violin on death, and it was. There's one article about um, contemporary urban Chinese funeral. And the article um, was kind of, the background of the article was uh, the, the whole additive violence published in the end of 1980s. So it was really, immediate, pretty much we can say it's immediately after Cultural Revolution, right? So it's already been 20 years. And so like we still don't know much about death in urban China. And let alone there was just no work. Um, funeral industry in general. So so it was kind of in that chain of thought, I decided to do field work in um, on kind of funeral industry. So um, so that's the how I came to that project part. Uh, one last thing I want to say, in the end, my book has nothing to do with compassion, like whether we're talking about commodified form of compassion. And part of the reason, actually not part, the main reason is that's that's just... That framework just doesn't make sense in terms of what I saw in the field. So now circling back to like the second part and the third part of your question, you asked me like why death ritual and why kind of the intersection between, let's say, um, uh, uh, and the market and the state, all these parts. So really the answer is that's what it's based on my fieldwork finding like pretty much the first couple of weeks. So what do I mean by that? Um, so I remember my very first day spending on a funeral parlor when I kind of officially start my field work. So it's not my preliminary field work. I will talk about preliminary field work next. So my very first day actually doing field work is so I went to two funerals. So the first funeral uh, was the deceased was in retired um, government officials. So, and then the funeral was exactly like what I described in the later part of my chapter. It's something called memorial meetings. And the whole um, point of the memorial meetings, you have these, you have the memorial speech, you have a thank you speech, and both and one given by the deceased uh, 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 last work unit representative. The other was given by um, the chief mourner, which is the oldest the son of the deceased. The, the, but the both speech are uh, uh, very stylized. Uh, 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 they they sounds like they they talk about how the deceased was like a good um, good communist party member, among other things. And I can talk about detail of the, those meetings. So I was thinking, okay, that's kind of weird, but also not that weird because the deceased 
was a retired public servant. So I thought, okay, this might be just be exceptional case. But then the next funeral I went to immediately after that, the the deceased was just a regular worker, just very ordinary people, old, ordinary men. And he just, you know, he's just like regular worker before he died. And the, the way he was commemorated was like identical with that first person. And that's when I started realize, okay, that's kind of weird. That's not how I imagine what funeral was like in in China. But then a couple of days later, I went to my third funeral. It was a housewife. She she didn't work in her whole life. But again, she was commemorated as a model socialist citizen. And then that's when I start realized, like, okay, there is this very strange, this very interesting, like something I really want to know more about, this connection between death ritual and this, this desire to project, this idealized image of being a model socialist citizen at the end of life. So that's, that's really how, yeah. I mean, my book is about this because that's what I find in my fieldwork. And then so same with the the part on the kind of the entanglement between the state and the market force. So um, this is, a, I, I don't remember uh, if it's actually in my book because I revised my book so many times. I took a lot of detail. Uh, so, um, so this has something to do with kind of the nature of a funeral parlor as an institution. And uh, at that time, uh, when I so so basically in two thousand eight, I had the idea of I want to study funeral home, and then I did a kind of um, uh, I was then I start trying to actually more systematically read more and uh, uh, literature on, on funeral, and then the next summer I went back to um actually I went to Shanghai and Beijing specifically uh to try to figure out where I can do this research, and then um. At that time, I did not know funeral parlors were uh, um, were belong to civil affairs bureau. I know it's a state organization, but I did not know exactly how that uh, 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 kind of the, the 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 bureaucracy worked. And most importantly, I did not have any connection to funeral industry. I'm not. I mean, I'm not from Shanghai or Beijing. So I basically made a cold call to. Shanghai Funeral and Intimate Trade Association. So I was thinking, okay, it's a trade association, it's a business association. Maybe they can, I was thinking maybe they are more willing to talk to me as a total stranger with no introduction. And then maybe they should be able to get me to kind of contact one of the funeral parlors. And then that's when, and by talking to them, and then they were actually, they were really nice. They, they talked to me and that's how I ended up don't feel working in Shanghai. But it's very interesting is then by talking to them, I realized that the Secretary General of the Trade Association used to be a head of a funeral parlor in Shanghai. So, okay, so that connection makes sense. But then later I realized that, okay, but the, the chair of the Trade Association he used to be basically he used to be a public servant working in one of the uh, units in the larger basically on the civil affairs bureau 
and he he was the party party secretary of the uh, association, and he basically retired from his government post to work in this trade association, and that's when I kind of realized that that's actually a very classical example if you read anything about uh, like the all the NGO in China, which is like a government-run NGO. But at that time, it really didn't connect the dot. I would just, I somehow thought, oh, maybe if you know it's somehow exceptional, it's different. But anyway, but it's by actually talking to these people and trying to understand more about funeral parlor as an institution. And then that's when I realized this entanglement between the state into the market and in and, 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 uh, and also um, another thing is one last thing I want to add is when I actually first visit um, before I officially start field work, I interviewed someone from one of the funeral parlors through the introduction of trade association and he talked to me a lot more about funeral parlor and what they did and then and at that time it was kind of really interesting religion. So I want to know, and that's a key part of me trying to figure out what contemporary urban Chinese funerals was. And then, so then, so specifically asked about religion. And then he said, oh, they have, they have, um, they have some kind of, uh, they, their funeral parlor allow um, religion in the sense that it's accommodate consumer need. So then he talked about a specific room they have for weight keeping that has a Buddhist um, statue. So then I say, oh, can I visit that that meeting hall? And then he said, um, he was very hesitant. He said, he asked me to wait until I officially start field work. <laughs> and then, so I said, oh, okay. So I didn't got visit that those rooms uh, uh, during my preliminary field work. But again, these incidents show this tension between the state, the market, and, and also... The existence of a religion in a space, in a state space. So, yeah. So, anyways, all these things. Um, that's how I start um getting to the research on funeral industry, on urban Chinese funeral, but specifically on death ritual and the, the kind of the the entanglement between the politics, the state, and the market, and and and, and through these uh, space and through funeral parlor. That's fantastic. And it's it's fascinating how these connections, you know, came in 2008, right to you. And then, you know, from little, you know, step by step, you, you kind of, um, right, got to, to know more. And, you know, we will hear more about the book. Um, and it, uh, it comprises of seven chapters. And uh, it's organized in two parts accompanied by the introduction and the conclusions, of course. And, uh, and I'll quote here, uh, it impacts how different kinds of power, ideas, and practices come together in the making of funeral professionals, the bereaved, and the dead in Shanghai, end of quote. And um, another quote from page 13, uh, you know, uh, very clearly states that, uh, and as you mentioned, uh, that it is one of the first ethnograph- ethnographies of urban death rituals and the funeral industry in contemporary China. And, um, you know, I also uh, looked for my own research a little bit, and you are absolutely right. Like the last thing that was published was 20. 
well, now more than 20 years ago, um, right? And it was specifically on the urban place. So I was very happy to to see her book that talked about, you know, the urban environment and, um, you know, had so, so much detail to it um, because there was and is, right, uh, still, um, you know, information, right, missing. Um, and, you know, just to, to, to go back, the book analyzes pivotal changes in funeral governance, death rituals, and the Shanghai death industry, and from this, while I have many questions, uh, I want to start by inquiring about an underlying argument at the book's core, and that is related to the claim that death is a node of power. And can you please tell us more about this and how the idea essentially begins to describe the interconnectedness uh, between funeral professionals, death rituals, politics, and political economy in the PRC? Yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah. So um, earlier, what I say about um, death ritual and how, kind of how I get interested in, in, in kind of the entanglement of politics in the market kind of already, I think, I believe already kind of give a hint of how these things come together. But actually, um, in my book introduction, um, I have this great story, you know, anthropologists, we have those moments in life that we thought it's just an ordinary day. We just this very casual conversation. And then suddenly we encounter this, like the, 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 the key of like the, the, my ethnography fieldwork. So, so, yeah. So, and in my book, I, I start my book with one such story. So, um, so it was, so one in one afternoon, um, I went to um, I and I was working with a group of funeral professionals. Um, they are private funeral brokers, which I will explain a little bit later. So um, they are private funeral brokers. So we just finished a memorial meeting, and then uh, we went to then we 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 got everyone on the bus, and then we drove to a restaurant nearby. It's uh, it's where um, people gonna the bereaved gonna have a funeral banquet um, there, which is uh, it, it 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 it's a common practice in Shanghai. So and then um, I I later find out uh, that um, so the the reason I later find out is because when I walk into the restaurant, I notice the wall of the banquet hall. It's a whole text of a memorial speech. Uh, sorry, it's a whole text of a, a surfer people speech. So if you have traveled to China, you were, you 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 saw this slogan: "Surfer people, where I everywhere, right? So, like on a school, on a bag, or on a coffee mug, stuff like that." So I saw, I I know that's like has something to do with like Chinese Communist Party, but. Honestly, I have never read. I actually didn't know it's a it's a, a specific speech. So so I was like so um I was in that restaurant looking at the wall, but the the wall only have the content of the speech, did not have the title. The title of the speech is "Serve the People." So I was just trying to read the content, and then uh someone uh and the uh, a funeral broker who took me there approached me, and then she asked me like. What are you doing? Like say, oh, I'm I'm trying to read this text, like to figure out what this what this text is. And then she like her eye open and she stared at me. She said, That's the speech. That's surfler people's speech. I said, yeah. she said, Have haven't you read it? I said, 
uh, I kind of, I said, no, I said, I know like several people, I know this slogan, but I, I didn't know it's an actual speech and there's actually a text associated with it. And she said, yeah, several people is a memorial speech. And then, and then, then, then when we went back to her office and then, um, the she saw her colleagues and the as soon as she saw one of her colleagues, she was so excited to tell her colleagues say, Hey, this is Xiao Liu, that's how they call me, you know, someone who is on her way to get a PhD. She did not know self the people is a memorial speech. And then <laughs> He said, that colleague, he, he was very nice. He tried to, you know, save my face. He said, oh, you know, it's not her fault. And she's from Taiwan. So, you know, uh, Chiang Kai-shi is not going to re- let, you know, Taiwanese read those, you know, Communist Party texts. So he was very nice. I think that's one of the good thing about being a kind of outsider study in China. So she, so he tried to explain to me, she said, he said, you know, let me, uh, let me tell you. So, several people speech to like um, to Chinese funeral. It's like you know, it's like a Bible to Christianity. So that really. <laughs> so and then he immediately told me another thing that's even more amazing. He said, "So, did you see Chairman Mao's shine in the restaurant?" I was like, "Huh? Wait! Like, what are you talking about? Like, a shine? Like, do you?" actually mean a shrine he said yeah i said no i did not see it and then like i i was like determined to go back like immediately well i had to wait for a couple of days and then i finally saw where the shrine is the shrine was at the, the the front door and so in that case it is at the symbolic center of the restaurant but most people um they i mean they going they will enter the restaurant from the parking lot, which is in the back of the restaurant. So most people uh, actually don't see the chairman's chairman mouth shrine. So it, it is a, an actual shrine. So then uh, later I asked, it just doesn't make sense. So I asked him, like, I mean, I I heard about the cult of Mao. So I, I did I didn't know there was like a temple for chairman Mao in certain place. So that I know. But like, why do you have a Chairman Mao's shine in a funeral banquet restaurant? That like that particular conjunction, it just didn't make sense to me. So then he told me this is because um, the the restaurant used to be in a location that's just across from Longhua Martyr Cemetery, and uh, um, that same location. Uh, um, before the the restaurant, before the funeral banquet restaurant established uh, their business there, it was other business. Uh, and none of the previous business worked. So it's just a bad spot. But then these funeral banquet restaurant uh, owner, he decided that, the prosper- I, I call that restaurant Prosperity. So Prosperity's owner decided that um, there was another funeral banquet restaurant nearby and they were doing well. And we are, uh, and so there is um, a Longhua Temple, which is a huge tourist site nearby, and also not too far away from Longhua Funeral Parlor. So it should be a good spot for um, a funeral banquet restaurant. So he decided to open a funeral banquet restaurant. But then their business is also not very good. 
And then, so they then they decide they then you know follow common practice. They they had a guanyin. They have Buddha Sava statue there, uh, in the restaurant to hopeful prosperity. It didn't work. They had wealth guy also didn't work. And then so finally, the owner of the prosperity decided, okay, I gotta hire a feng shui master to tell me like see if there's anything that feng shui master can do. And feng shui master can. And immediately he told the owner, ha ha, the problem is that Longhua Mata Cemetery, just across, just, you know, nearby, uh, across from your restaurant. So the problem is people, like people who were buried in those cemetery, they are martyr. The communist party members, they were soldiers. So they must be atheist. So Buddha Sava or Welska, they're not going to work. You cannot just control them with those is called superstitious trickery. So you need to have some someone that they were actually gonna be afraid of. So the only option is Chairman Mao himself as the you know leader of Plotaria. So so the restaurant owner said, Oh, okay. Then he set up a mile shine and amazingly his business <laughs> did take off. So, so the business was so good that in the end they had to move to a, a separate, a different location. That the second location is where I visit, but they kept the mouth shine. And in fact, ever since their business took off in the first place, they uh they kind of follow popular religious practice of so in Chinese popular religion, like people commonly will celebrate deity's birthday. So the restaurant owner, he did the same thing. So he he hosted this annual banquet on Mao's birthday. Uh, and the, the people who got invited to those banquets are private funeral brokers. So the reason that Prosperity invite these private funeral brokers, uh, it's because to thank them, to, well, it's for, you know, celebrating Mao's birthday, but also to thank those private funeral brokers, bring business bring funeral banquet business to their restaurant instead of some other restaurant. And the other competitor, so other than other private funeral banquet restaurant, the other competitor of this funeral banquet business, it's a funeral parlor themselves. They also have a um, restaurant to host the funeral banquet. So these, so the mouse shine tell you, Kind of show the the how the the state's power and also this secular socialism idea of like, like the atheists, the communist party member are not afraid of superstition, so they're not afraid of Buddha Sava or, or wealth God, right? And then obviously there's also this religious power, uh, the the idea of spirits and afterlife through through deity's birthday, through through um, feng shui master, all these things, and then also funeral brokers competing against state funeral parlor of a banquet business, right? Because the parlor themselves also have the state state funeral parlor themselves also have in, um, business interests here. So this kind of very interesting relationship between. The broken state parlor, but uh, also the entanglement of the between the market and the state, and also just the fact that funeral banquet is the deceased. So in Shanghai, they talk about funeral banquet as the deceased, the last act of hospitality. So it's 
it's supposed the funeral banquet is conceptually they 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 talk about in terms of this is a deceased last chance to 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 throw a banquet to and and to thank people to come to he um you know he's her funeral and to say goodbye to to the deceased so it it it's in in enactment of social relationality right so it is a a note of power power has this is this different kind of power so that's a power part but the sev- second part is this note so i use this word uh, it's a note of power in order to address certain issues so the first is I mean to address the multiplicity of the kind of power here, right? So it's the, all the power that I just talked about. So this this multiple power, and the second thing, this multiple power. I want to emphasize this multi-directional process. So it's not just multiple power coming from a specific direction. No, it's they 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 go through multiple directions and 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 since they go to multiple direction they they come from different direction they go to different direction because you have these different groups of people involved specifically you have funeral professionals the bereaved and the dead so so using death as a node of power basically allow me to extend this relationship between governing power uh, which again i really want to emphasize how like the the governing power itself is entangled with the market i'm not treating the state as the opposite of the market so the 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 the, this entangle uh, this relationship between governing power and what the power intended to do in terms of shaping different group of people in managing deaths and so this part is the intended consequences, right? But then also finally, it's what the unintended consequences are because you you have this different flow of power. You're gonna shape different. You're gonna shape different group of people differently. So the these idea node of power allow me to kind of tackle kind of the theoretical discussion on what subjectivity is and 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 how we should. Um, approach subjectivity especially in relation to governing power so yeah yeah fascinating um and um you know it just it, as it's such a it's a such such a complex matter right power and how it's is distributed and its effects and and you know from your description just now it it sounds like there was extensive research that you have done uh, you know throughout years, just years and years of complete immersion in this industry and, you know, in this in this particular uh, environment. And the book men- mentions some of the assumptions you held before you started your fieldwork. And, you know, just for, for the benefit of, of uh, students and, you know, other people who want to start uh, fieldwork very soon or in the near future, right? Um, I just wanted to ask very briefly what were some of the assumptions, right, and, you know, the relationship with the fieldwork in, in that sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah, thank you. So, um, yeah, so I have, uh, um, so I have two assumptions. So basically, my first assumption. So because that, so before I start field work, I really did not know what urban Chinese funerals were. So I had assumption. I want, and my first assumption is, I assume I would see, uh the rise of personalized funeral. So if not the rise of, if not actual popularity of the personalized funeral, I assume at very least I saw like people have this desire 
to 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 have personalized the funeral. And the, the reason I have this assumption is because in in China study, especially um, people who kind of focus on contemporary China, one of the kind of big discussion that talk about um, the change after China uh, in after the introduction of market economy is this thing called rise of individual. So people with different theoretical background will talk about, will conceptualize this individual in different way. But at the end of the day, it, uh, a lot of people talk about the big part of these, like understanding kind of how, like uh, in, in China study, we call like reform and opening period, right? So it's after the introduction of market economic reform, people talk about rights of individuals. So then, you know, so... If rights of individual um, is true, which I do think is true, then I assume we will see the rights of personalized funeral where people can commemorate the death as some sort of unique individuals. So that was my first assumption. And then my second assumption, which I, I want to emphasize, it's not just China. I mean, if you see... Um, in these kind of post-industrial society in Europe, in America, like that's really like when people talk about kind of contemporary, like a funeral, like the train of new funeral, it's all these like a super individualized, uh, uh, personalized funeral. So like it's a almost, so it's like a move away from uh, um, rituals to emphasize this kind of individuality among other things, uh, even in, in the form of death ritual. So that was my first assumption. My second assumption is I assume I will see uh, the rise of traditional death ritual. So um, because I mean, uh, a lot of work um, kind of uh, on Chinese religion, we I mean scholars all observe that basically the revival of um, religion in China after the introduction of market economy. So, um, but specifically, scholars have a different opinion in terms of what does that revival of religion mean in post-reform China, right? So some people say, oh, this re- revival of religion in China, it's actually, it's the rise of individual, it, it's, it's an invented tradition, it's actually motivated, driven by this kind of rise of utilitarian individual need. There are some other people, um... Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now talk about rise of these relig- religious revival as um, kind of kind of the 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 almost like a, it's like the retreat of the state uh, the the revival of a community revival of a civil society so in some way they are opposite when talk about one see rise of religion as rise of the individual the other say rise of religion as rise of some sort of civil society either way my concern is no matter whether it's about rights of individual or rights about some sort of com- community, it's 
the, the bottom lines we did see rise of this kind of religious life in China. So I assume I will see rise of traditional death ritual. So, uh, but so that was my assumption. My assumption was not directly on funeral. It was on some other things, but the these assumption about the social trend that helped me formulate my 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 hypothesis of like what I think I will find in when when I try to understand contemporary urban Chinese death ritual. But um, my actual finding, basically, um, I, I can talk about a little bit more later. But I just want to say very quickly. I was basically the first assumption. It turned out to be completely incorrect. There was no uh, rise of personalized funeral if we're talking about normal deaths. And uh, in fact, um, it, there's even very few desire. Like uh, I, um, I, we can talk about that later. Uh, but basically, yeah, there's very few. The rise of personalized funeral. That assumption turned out to be incorrect entirely. Uh, and then the second thing is the rise of traditional death ritual. It is partially correct, but it's correct in a very specific form. It's correct in the sense that it's it's this religious ritual is uh is basically entangled with what I mentioned earlier, this very secular socialist uh way of commemorating the death. So so in some way, these the resilience of socialist ritual that I was it was totally not what I expected. Especially, we did see for the world of the living, we did see the decline of work unit. We did see the increase the space for family and private life. So all this is true in for the world of the living. It just. It's not true for the world of the dead. At the world of when when someone die, so the resilience of the socialist funeral was like really it's it's the core of how the the dead was commemorated. So yeah, so those are so those are how I formed my assumption and the you know and how I tend not to be those assumptions were incorrect or partially correct. Yeah. But I think more than incorrect, I think it highlights the um, the importance of field work and, you know, of, of just, you know, research and extensive, uh, you know, involvement in the environment that we that we study. And, you know, I wouldn't say there were, you know, like I wouldn't use incorrect, but more, you know. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm exaggerating, but when you write a proposal, you right. need to have this kind of... I know. Uh, <laughs> Statement, right? Yeah. <laughs> so and, I say, and also, that's that's a cool thing about kind of more qualitative research. It's not that like the answer is immediately clear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's so interesting when you you know you have those you know discoveries and when things and the dots just connect beautifully. It's it's great. <laughs> yeah, and you know I'm I'm. I'm just very uh, excited to to jump into the first part of the book, and that's entitled The Funeral Industry and the Making of Market Subjects. And it encompasses three chapters. And, um, you know, um, I'm going to quote, it discusses the changing uh, governance of the Shanghai funeral industry and its consequences for ideas of self from three perspectives. Uh, The Shanghai government, state practitioners, and funeral brokers, end of quote. 
And the first chapter, Civil Governance, takes a step back into history and brings to the fore the CCP's attempt at creating political subjects through um, the nationalization of all funeral institutions. Um, and um, I mean, you know, that's just one action that that, that happened, right? But um, it just came right after the foundation of the PRC. And, you know, it's it's important for, for the current context. So the concept you develop here is, is very intriguing. And I wanted to, um, you know, just to hear more about the, the civil governance of death yeah. and its historical yeah. Uh, yeah, background. Yeah. Yeah, so basically, um, I, I came up this concept based on um, my analysis of basically what happened uh, roughly between 1949 to, um, shall we say, uh, right before Cultural Revolution happened. Like, what was ha- what did the state do? And, uh, and what was the goal of whatever the policy they were doing. So that's kind of the first thing. So it's by looking through the the, the key uh, policies that happened uh, during these basically 20 years, I uh, I proposed this concept of civil governance. And the, the reason, um, and, and, and one last thing is, and I, the conclusion, let me go jump to conclusion, is the goal of civil governance is to create political subject at the end of life. And now I'm going to circling back to say how I get to that conclusion, how I get to this phrase of civil governance of death and how and in what way, why I say the goal, the intended consequences is to politic is to create political subject. So basically, I I um I got a I accidentally got a uh uh encounter a basically a set of um, archive documents, which are basically government um, documents uh, of um, funeral and interment um, management office. So, and, and, uh, uh, and uh, so this chapter is basically based on primary data. So that was, that was difficult for anthropologists that we're not trained to be a historian. So that was that it has it poses its own uh, unique challenges. So, so the main thing. So I'm in combing through these these archive material and trying to to find out the kind of at least the the thing I find most interesting in in this these two twenty years these two decades is I talk about three things. So the first thing is, is the nationalized like the nationalization of funeral institution. So Shanghai, before 1949, before Chinese Communist Party took over, Shanghai was actually, it was like the birthplace of like the modern uh, funeral home was set by, was actually established by an in, in American businessman. Uh, that's like the, it was, it's really kind of like American funeral home. And 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 uh, that initially only served like foreigner among other things, and then afterward there are um, because Shanghai is a city of immigrants, so there was also other different uh, institution like coffin depository. That's where people temporarily store coffin because uh, traditional idea of ideal death is you should be buried uh, uh, at your hometown homeland. And since Shanghai is a city of immigrants, so and if you die in Shanghai, um, for those people who could afford, they will wait um, until they have uh, 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 people will like deposit the 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 coffin with, with this 
the deceasing and way and then, then when they have enough and then they, they, they basically put it on a boat and they ship them back to a nearby um, province and village and so on and so forth. All this is to say there are many different kind of funeral institutions exist before 1949. You have like a cemetery, you, uh, uh, you have uh, uh, funeral homes, you have these different kind of coffin depository and so on and so forth. So, and there's also like religious organization, especially like Buddhist temple, uh, or some like a crematorium. So there's all these different funeral institutions. One of the first thing the Chinese Communist Party did after 49 is to nationalize all these different funeral institutions. And it's, this is something happened, not just in funeral industry. It's, it happened to all the industry. I mean, that's, that's. I mean that's kind of the 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 nature of a socialist economy is this central it's a state ownership and centralized the playing economy. Uh, so um, although in Shanghai, without going into detail, it it actually has some some degree of flexibility. But but the what the state tried to do immediately after forty nine is to nationalize all these different funeral institutions. And then in my book, I specifically talk about that foreign, um, that company, that funeral home that initially owned by foreign uh, a foreigner. And I talk about these different funeral homes that are owned by native association. And then uh, I talk about the religious uh, organized, um, a particular crematorium organ, uh, owned by a Buddhist temple and the, how they were nationalized uh, under the Chinese Communist Party. And what I find is to do this nationalization, like uh, for for example, for the first one, the the foreign uh, funeral home, is to do that. In effect, the state tried to cut out all these foreign influence. Right, it, it's an act of eliminate this external otherness in China, in Shanghai. Right, a native place association. Right, native place is important. It, um regional identity that in some way we can say cross is a foreign is a different bubble foreign is different uh, separate internal identity right so in in that case it's these you have these internal others and by by nationalizing these native place association on the funeral homes you essentially say we no more we should not have this internal difference it doesn't matter whether you are from suzhou or wenzhou it's you know it's it's your own city funeral palette right it's in fact it's to erase this internal difference and then same with religious organization uh, it's to to eliminate this kind of the 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 source of identity coming from this different religious institution. So this is about this elimination. And the second set of policy that I talk about in my book is promote cremation. And the, the way I talk about is I got so some of these documents are funeral uh are those funeral parlor workers work report talk about what they did. And so that they, they gave so in some way it's both a it's a report that a worker wrote for the, their superior to show they actually uh, promote the cremation. But the, uh, so but the the report itself have very interesting like give you detail about what they did that how they in the, if you in the, there are several cases and when I read those report 
report closely, I noticed that one of the key things for those funeral, uh, for these funeral parlor workers to persuade the bereaved to accept cremation is to make sure is to kind of to to isolate to distract uh, the key person out of extended family influence. So, for example. Um, I had a one case. It's um, the uh, the deceased was a, a man, uh, relatively young. I that's the sense I got from the report. So, uh, and then the the wife was uh, the the funeral state funeral parlor worker tried to persuade the wife to give uh, to to accept cremation, but the, the man's family uh, disagree. They they don't think he they sh- um. Um, uh, they, the 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 husband should be cremated because uh uh, uh because the ideal uh, way of death is a body burial among other things. So then the report talk about how then the 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 state funeral practitioner talk to the widow and say, don't worry, you know they are they are just you know we, we the state stand behind you to fight against patriarchy and the patrilineal influence and, and so on so forth so if you if you do if you accept the uh, cremation and and then you know the state will like take care of you and something like that so i have different cases to reverse gender as well so my point is through this report on how they actually promote creation and uh, cre- cremation i find really the key is to kind of disembed the uh the chief mourner from the extended kinship network. So the third policy I talk about in these uh, in the uh, in the in in the civil governance of death. So if the first two is about destruction in in the elimination, the third one is about construction. So it's it's the fact that as an industry, this really no value no like it's not like a textile industry you can produce a product and products as a value that can contribute to socialist economy there's no no like no like value there so and which pause important issue in times like greatly forward like what's the production output so then so also so during this time like so funeral industry also trying to Make sure they 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 have some sort of they contribute to some sort of productivity and therefore the the national development. So they 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 they, they have these like they develop these kind of different sideline industry like they plant agricultural product in cemetery and and so on and so forth. But the thing that I talk about in depth is pig raising. They try to raise pigs. Um, cemeteries and the like the 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 just empty um just wherever they have like empty um space um uh, uh in, in 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 on the property then you know they set up a a facility to raise pig especially um uh, and during uh cultural revolution so so these 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 concern and then I have this report that uh. uh uh, uh, written in the middle of the great leap forward that the worker, again, it's like a work criticism report. Like they try to say, they, they were really concerned. So there are a lot of reports about the production output of those agricultural products. But the pigs are really interesting that the pig, um, 
that report that I translated and kind of discussing depths is the whole report is to discuss why did those pigs die in, in, in Shanghai Funeral Palace facility. So like they, they talk about, oh, it's because, well, they were malnourished in the first place. They didn't have enough food. And if you put that in the temporal context of greatly forward, you really see this analogy between human and pig. So domestic animal, it's interesting in kind of, it, it's a separate issue. I don't want to get into too much detail. Domestic animal work both as the opposite of humanity, but also work as extension of human, as the analogy of human, right? So in the, in, in depending on specific context, in the, in that particular context, I feel like the funeral professional in, in, working for state funeral parlor, even though they're writing a report about why pigs die, in some way it's a projection about all these deaths of the real human. But at the end of the day, I wanted, what I want to get at is this part of the funeral policy in some way is this attempt, try to really kind of make deaths as something productive, like literal productive, like has some sort of productivity that it really have this idea of like, you know, being a, a person in this new socialist era is about being a productive worker, right? And then death industry has this danger of not being productive. So, so in other words, it's just through talking about these policies and I can talk about I, I talk about how by the the first two is about eliminating this different source of identity from external others, internal other and religious organization, and also eliminate influence from these different from extended kingship network. And then the third policy talk about the desire to kind of build a a, a productive socialist worker is these project this imagination of what idealized the political subject should be so that's why um i call oh and the one key point that i call the civil governance because on the one hand it's really about using this part is the part that this death ritual is really about a, a, a personal affair about population control on the other there's actually literal translation so basically after state nationalized all these funeral institutions the governing bureau of this funeral institution shift from being from house bureau to the hand of civil affairs bureau. So that's like a direct reference to that. So in in, in that case, that shift in bureaucracy really entails that um, the governing desk now at this point when you know Chinese Communist Party kind of consolidated its power, it's less a matter of hygiene or health or disease. It's more a matter of culture, like a control, managing population. So so that's why that's why this is that I talk about civil governance of death and the the goal is to create a political subject that, that was like intended consequences. The actual the reality obviously was more comp- complicated uh, in a sense that it's I'm not saying like somehow kingship network did not affect people's life, which is not true. That's not what I say. But uh, mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say is the it, it, these, it, these set of policy that really set like one big part of the logic of governing death under Chinese Communist Party is to kind of 
create this idealized uh, uh, person, which basically by definition, it's a particular kind of political subject who are individual, in that sense, isolated, but directly tied to party state. There's no like intermediate association like civil system. like a um, native police association or religious institution or even kingship network is this this kind of direct connection that's kind of in this in, in in state's imagination of what they could achieve by managing deaths in specific ways through that set of policy that's called they, they actually have a word for it they call that whole set of policy funeral and intimate reform things on Geiger um which I will talk about later, which is still a part of official policy after marketization. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's what the civil governance of death is about, and it's and and the, how its intended consequences is to create this kind of political subject at the end of life. Right, 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 right. and you know it, it follows very closely with. Um... I mean, chapter two follows very closely, um, right, with the, it's called market governance, right? And then right after this, you know, set of changes and, you know, um, kind of, yeah, changes, <laughs> I don't have a word for it, um, right, that were uh, brought to, to society, then we have the, the concept of the market governance of death. And, you know, that emphasizes the changes in uh, in the state funeral practitioners, economic and political position. So, you know, from the big kind of picture, we're getting to a more, um, like a, a smaller, more detailed type of, of position. Um, and we're also talking about subjectivity. So, you know, the, the chapter um, uh, brings all of this together. And, you know, I was I was very curious about the details in the what the, the, the chapter calls the dissonance between market governments and market subjectivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like you said, this chapter follow very closely to the, the chapter one. So, so, so basically this chapter continue to focus on uh, funeral parlor uh, as an in, in institution, except that the, the new things that I'm really talking about in this chapter are two things, right? One is the, the, the time frame is after the introduction of market economy. And then the second thing is, I now I'm actually talking about actual people. So it's the it's a particular group of funeral professionals, those people who work at those uh, funeral parlors. So I mean, one of the things about the the marketization. So after China adopted market economy in all sectors, in, I mean, if you re, uh, recall, like at that time, like. Uh, and uh, Deng Xiaoping was talking about whether it's a black cat or a white cat, you know, whichever cat, <laughs> whichever cat can make money is a good cat. That's an actual That's how I say. My point is to say, I'm, I'm trying. What I'm trying to get at is, people did not actually know how to do a market economy. Actually, the what the phrase is, more uh, is like a, you have to touch the stone in the river. Try to figure out how you cross the river. That's actually a really good analogy about how Chinese Communist Party try to figure out how to do market economy. They did not know. And for funeral parlor, so again, so in in there are a lot of scholars talk about that period in in different area. But again, like we don't really have any work talk about how this process happened in funeral industry in funeral parlor. So funeral parlor, like I said, it's a part of. 
and civil affairs bureau, and and specifically, it's a uh, it's a 殡葬管理所 it's a funeral and interment management office. So that's the immediate governing、uh, government bureau that's in charge of uh, 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 the 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 two at that time the two、um, Shanghai City Funeral Parlor. Okay, so but how do we in in how do we make sure funeral parlor generate profit? So the key here is so after so in Shanghai, when the Cultural Revolution happened,、um, basically all funeral homes. And including and all cemeteries were shut down because they were all superstitions. In fact, even the government bureau itself got shut down too because the government bureau is also superstitious, according to the Red Guard. So, for people in Shanghai, there was so the whole Shanghai there was only two crematoria left open. So in Shanghai, so even though the state was promoting cremation during fifty and sixties, um. I I talk about in last chapter. It was really more by persuasion. So it's not、uh, the cremation rate.、Uh, it's actually at most in certain period, it's like fifty percent. And then when they say fifty percent, they really uh, it's really because there are a lot of uh um deaths of young children or nameless body. Those body got cremated. So so the so if we consider if we take out those, the cremation rate was actually really low. So, so, but when Cultural Revolution happened, suddenly, like the only way in Shanghai, in in urban Shanghai, you only have crematorium. There's no more cemetery. So, so you have to cremate the body. So, so, so for places like Shanghai, the two funeral, actually not just downtown Shanghai, but the uh, the for so funeral parlor at that time they were not even called funeral parlor. They were called crematorium. They were called 火葬场 So funeral parlor in that context, it's it's the same with crematorium. So whether they can generate profit is directly tied to the cremation rate of that place. So in 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 other province, where the cremation rate、uh, was low, where there was just more flexibility in terms of、um, trying to uh, uh, get out. Kind of around with the mandatory cremation policy, then funeral, then crematorium in those area are they they don't make a lot of money. In fact, they depend on state subsidy. But for Shanghai, Shanghai in that case was really exceptional. That、um, right in the beginning of Cultural Revolution, since that's really the only way to do it, then like almost overnight it reached to like almost universal cremation rate. So Shanghai crematorium actually. Generate profits even before the introduction of market economy. So, but then after the introduction of market economy, then okay, then you know leaders were talking about okay, so how can we generate more profit, right? In in the spirits of market economy. So for Shanghai, really, then the focus it's on ah.、Uh, so for other place, the focus could be on let's increase cremation rate. But for Shanghai, it doesn't really work like that. So they have to focus on. Merchandise sell by both by selling more merchandise, but specifically also by create more kind of merchandise to sell. Okay, so now so we're basically talking about we need a group of new people who are like super salesmen, right? Who can sell, who know how to sell, who have who are motivated to sell. So basically,、um, but then the problem is people who work at the funeral parlor. 
they for a long time again you will hear this a familiar narrative like they talk about the problem with those people not just you know policy and was like you know those state factories is they're used to this they, they call the eating from the common pot mentality like so because no matter how much work you do you kind of you get same amount of uh, payment more or less. Uh, there's some difference in terms of seniority, difference in terms of gender and age, but more or less, it doesn't. Your your the the money you take home does not tie to your performance output. So then, uh, so 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 then, Shanghai government say, okay, so in so they 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 think the way we can marketize, if you know, pilot, right? The way we can increase prof- profit. Is we're gonna introduce uh, different. Uh, uh, we, we're gonna introduce economic efficiency in the funeral parlor in the sense that we're gonna introduce commission in, in commission not just at the uh, at, at both the leadership level and also uh, uh, at the like a grassroots level. So 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 the more you do, the more sell you accomplish. The higher salary, so you have a preset quota. So I, I talk in detail about how they did this. Like there's like a preset quota, and once they reach the preset quota, they got like I like like three percent. But if then they exceed the preset quota, they can got like ten percent or something like that. So this is like a different scheme for this commission, and then the even and then also the funeral power leader. That's also a very interesting part. Was now was Task with like oh the funeral parlor leader gonna take some a personal responsibility to the 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 profit and loss of the funeral parlor as a way to encourage the parlor's leader to take a bigger risk. So if you take a little bigger risk and if you succeed, then you're gonna get a higher reward. So it's this idea of include encouraging risk, encouraging kind of self motivation take self-responsibility, all these things. So, so far, this sounds like a classic uh, narrative of uh, new liberalism stories. And there are a lot of people who talk about these as like how this kind of new liberal uh, economy, uh, the emphasis on uh, uh, economic efficiency, kind of create and bring about this kind of new liberal subject. But what I would did in my book is to say, okay, so that was the state, that was the intended consequences. So yes, and that's what the state wanted to do. And we see that connection. But what was actually happened? So that's what I want to find out. So this is kind of, so this is part of my book is is the second part of my book, which is more based on ethnography and some archive material, is really looking to who those people working funeral parlor, who those people are. And my biggest finding is instead of becoming some sort of market subject, this kind of super sales people, so they they came to embody working class subjectivity. So the way I talk about, the way I see they came to embody working class subjectivity is based on how they talk about what happened in funeral parlor especially in relation to those grassroots workers, who they are in relation to like 
basically um, people at the managerial level. So um, in my book, I talk about this funeral parlor um, worker. He talked about how, oh, uh, one biggest change after the introduction of market economy is those leaders and, and the basically white collar worker. He did not use this term. They they left the production. They uh, uh, but then as a prop more that was um, so left the production. The way he used it uh, is actually not the orthodoxical usage of left production. So because it, the left production is actually a status category in China, which usually means when someone temporarily left, not stop receiving salary from the work unit. So for example, um, people who um, working in university have their... Um, university to be their work unit, but then they went to get a PhD. So during their time as a student, they still affiliate with the their work unit, but then they are, they're not receiving uh, salary. That's called left production. Let's say they are tour time. So that, like, the people who I talk to are not really using this term in this way. So the people he described as tour time, they're still receiving salary from funeral palace. So as I prop more, try to understand what, what does that term even mean? How did he use it? I realized what he tried to articulate is there are two different group of people. One group of people is those people who work with their heart. So which we can think about versus people who works with their hand. We can think about people who work with their heart as people who work with their brain. So essentially, it's talk about this kind of... Um, more like a white collar kind of worker versus manual labor, people who work with their hand, like people who work in, in crematorial facility, people who work in the, the, who actually managing, like addressing the body and applying makeup and those things. So in effect, is you have these really grassroots worker kind of come to realize that there's this class distinction between them and the other worker that was which would did not exist prior to the introduction of market economy and I, I talk about how this concept is kind of kind of built based on kind of the the traditional kind of Chinese idea of class distinction all with this kind of Chinese communist turn of left production all this is to say that for them real work is to be immersed in hard labor of Shuffle coal, which was his job earlier, and in, in working in, in crematorial, and uh, the, the 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 actual cremation facility. So it's 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 I interpret uh, these as it's in fact it's it's in and not just him and several workers. This they 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 show clear articulation of some sort of working class consciousness. But I do want to say that working class consciousness is different from working class in China. So because what I mean by that, so under kind of high socialist period, Chinese Communist Party has this different identity label, which is basically it's a way to categorize people. And if so, like in rural China, you got you got categorized as a landlord or 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 a peasant or actually it's like rich peasant, middle peasant, and poor peasant. So in 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 urban China, so you have like a, you have like a worker which is like the or a petty capitalist or or, or, or bourgeois capitalist. So 
so there so there's also this word "工人阶级" that's used as like communist parties uh uh, uh kind of classification, and uh, this kind of new working class consciousness it's not it's not that kind of um, socialist categorization of uh identity label. So it's a different kind, and specifically. This kind of working class consciousness that I observe among these grassroots funeral parlor workers is they this class consciousness was articulated with the logic of market competition. So what do I mean by that? So it's those grassroots workers, they would tell me that. It's really not fair to have this kind of income gap between, let's say, people who actually People who work in these um, body work with body directly versus the people who work in the sales department, or or even like a content or or even the funeral parlor leader, it's not fair. Um, uh, because they would tell me, because funeral parlors are state monopoly. There's no competition. They told me there's no competition in in Shanghai. There are only Three cities, in fact, the downtown within the the, the uh, inside they they call it the, in in the in the ring. There's only two funeral parlors, one in the north, one in the south. Of course, you can go to a different area, but really, there's no competition. It's a state monopoly. Only state can manage can own and uh, in Shanghai, only state own and uh, operate funeral parlor, and there are only two. So there's no competition. If there's no competition, then it is not justifiable for the say salespeople to get commission, since there's no competition. So they use these very market logic of competition and risk. There's no risk for funeral parlors leader to take such a big bonus. Because everyone gonna die, and when you die in Shanghai, you're gonna go to funeral parlor. There's no risk, so, so, so this is so that's what I mean by the, the this working class consciousness is based on the realization of income gap, and also this very market logic of competition and risk. That so I talk about how instead of like what other literature project how this kind of new liberalization of economy. Will bring about this kind of new liberal subject in my work, at least for this particular group of people. This kind of marketization uh, did not bring about market subjectivity. In this particular case, it actually created a working class kind of subjectivity. It created working class subjectivity, and in fact, when the condition is right, my book talk about how a group of uh, um, people in one particular funeral parlor, they try to, um, they sweat to uh, go, not strike, but a form of strike, it called slow down work. My point is that working class consciousness, when the condition is right, can translate into some sort of collective action to rebel against the state. Uh, and the state actually wanted those people to be an individual market subject. The state did not want this group of people to be a working class subject. So, so in that case, so there's this. So that's what I mean by the dissonance between market governance and the state's desire to transform these people into market subject, and the, the reality of how they are not. There's this dissonance uh, for this particular group of people.
Right. Yeah. yeah I mean, you know, it's, it, it's absolutely fascinating to, to see, right. The, the dynamics of, of what is happening. And it's also interesting if you, if we think about it from the, the funeral broker's perspective, um, and that's the the right the fragile middle chapter three, right? It, it's bringing to to light what what's happening um, right in the case of funeral brokers, and um, you know how they're they're you know they there's a resonance between the market governance and market market subjectivity, and you know I, I I'm I'm fascinated by their kind of in betweenness. <laughs> so I just wanted to um, to ask like who who were these these uh, funeral brokers? You know what was their job? I mean, of course, from the name we kind of understand, but you know, with more details and, you know, what, um, how they changed both the religious and the relational dimensions of rituals in Shanghai. Yeah. So um, funeral broker is actually the group of people that I work uh, longest and, and, and closest. Uh, basically, the I spent in, uh, roughly um, 18 months in, in Shanghai and actively doing field work. Um, and, uh, uh the, basically, the whole latest 12 months, I, I basically uh, primarily hang out with funeral broker. We still had to do all the funerals in, in, in funeral parlors, but when we were not doing funerals in funeral parlors, I just hang out in their office. So um, they are the people who took me to prosperity, the restaurant, and laugh at me for not knowing surf the people people's speech is a memorial speech as a someone who got who on her way to get a PhD. <laughs> so they are so in my book I um so just like any group so there are a very diverse set of group, but they are some kind of common characteristic that uh, uh, uh we can categorize these group of people. So so I call them brokers. So to begin with, I call them brokers uh, because they are mediator between the bereaved and the in the state funeral parlors. Um, because, like I say, on, um, there are only two funeral parlors they are owned by the state. So funeral brokers, they are not like a. Amer- so you know, when I talk to my American audience, I say they are not like an American funeral home director. They don't have their own facility. They are, I say, if you really want to use an analogy, think about them like wedding planner. So like they have to coordinate between the, the their customer and the, the venue and different supplier, like a caterers and flower shop and, you know, different small retail. So that's what funeral brokers were uh, in, in terms of like a job description. They, they are the mediator. They they hired by the bereaved uh, to make a funeral arrangement in funeral parlors. So, so the bereaved did not need to talk to funeral parlors worker uh, directly. So they let the funeral broker to do all these things. And they these brokers came really handy because in Shanghai, the general practice is to have funeral the third day after die, death, the occurrence of death. So for example, if someone died in the afternoon, you really only have two more days to 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 do funeral of course you can wait longer there's no law say you have to do it in three days but that's just the general practice so uh so so that's the first kind of general characteristic of those brokers but also demographically they are um they they tend to be socially marginalized people so uh um, during my field work uh uh I noticed a lot of them, and they also told me, especially early on in early um, 
1990s and 2000s, a lot of uh, funeral brokers are rural immigrants. And, and, and later, there are more and more Shanghai people join these become broker and again these Shanghai residents tend to be less educated uh, uh, people in Shanghai and as you and so that's I mean that's is so for people who don't know anything about China I mean that um, in general like people in China consider deaths and their bodies are very polluted like traditional you don't even mention the word death so 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 for so funeral industry funeral professionals like it's it's a it's a it's a it's a highly uh, discriminated against the industry like no one wanted their kids to be a funeral industry uh, funeral professional and and people look down upon those people and they're considered polluted they are a social outcast um, and so on and so forth so with that connection so you kind of can imagine people who. Uh, join funeral broker, uh, and unlike the state funeral parlor worker, they work for the government. So if you know anything about like a Chinese employment, working for government is actually a good job. I mean, the funeral parlor is not as good as other bureau, but overall, it's a it's an iron ice ball job. They're not public servant per se, but it, it it's a good it's a proper work unit. Like it's it's lifelong employment. It's stable, more or less lifelong. Uh, even after marketization, but the funeral broker, they are not. They are in in kind of in Chinese like economic term. They are guoti who they are self employed individuals or company. So this in effect is a transient form of employment. They work for hire. Right? By no means is some. It's it's like any. They, they are petty capitalists, small business owners, or or just individuals. So they are so. And so that's another layer make them kind of structurally fragile. And the third thing I talk about that they are um, kind of also make them structurally fragile is their relationship with funeral parlors. So uh, these uh, these funeral brokers, they on the one hand had to work with funeral parlor, right? Because all the funerals were hosted in funeral parlor. So you have to work with people there. So, yeah, so they're collaborating in that sense. But then they're also business competitive in the sense that after the marketization, um, the Shanghai government distinguished two types of products and service. One type is they call the civil affair item. So they include those products and services that closely related to uh, uh, uh cremation or dead body. So that's how I call it. So like a crematorial facility, but in, in Shanghai specifically, and this different in different regions, like this, the funeral parlor monopolized the hearse, monopolized the casket for cremation, among other things. So so in my book, I talk about basically anything that's directly related to dead body are state monopoly. So they are called civil affair item. Uh, item. So they're state monopoly. But there's a whole set of other things that um, they, they are called the folk custom items. So they are usually religious products, like the, the clothes you put on the disease or the spirits, goods, and, and, and incense, paper money, and, and, and including banquet service. So these folk custom items are open to uh, market competition. 
Mexico, including the urn, so where people can put the store cremate. So, so funeral parlance, they funeral, sorry, funeral parlance brokers, they are collaborator, but then they're also business competitor in that case, right? But then to make things even more complicated, it's they also, there's also this kind of ruler subject relationship. Part of the reason here is because the funeral parlor, after all, are extension of the state. And that's really the only institution that directly interact and manage directly interact with funeral broker. So even though funeral brokers was um uh so the, the most efficient way for the state to manage it to to govern this broker is just through funeral parlor. So so now you are in this very weird relationship between state funeral parlor and the funeral broker. They both are business competitors. They both have to work together. They collaborate. But then they are also kind of like a ruler subject. And so these kind of tripartite relationships make these funeral brokers are particularly fragile. And, and so what do they do? So and that's that's... The part what they did is an extension of their kind of this structurally fragile position. Is um, when I started field work, uh, I asked, uh, I I asked like a scholar who who in one of those civil affairs school training uh, uh, younger young generation of like a you know uh, 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 like a it's like a mortuary department. Uh, so I asked him about like who those funeral brokers are. Like I saw them uh, in in my uh, kind of uh, preliminary research, and he told me they are edgeball player. I have actually never heard the term used the English way as someone from Taiwan. So I had to like ask him like explain like what do you mean by edgeball player? So as I so I really kind of use this word as a way to kind uh, as a kind of key phrase to capture, uh, um. What funeral in some way who funeral broker does and and so what funeral broker did, so basically actual play is I think the best translation is pushing the envelope, although probably the state preferred the translation is some sort of going through loophole. Yeah. but the uh the diff so so the reason that funeral brokers are considered as actual players is because well for one they're not entirely legal. And a lot of their illegality actually associated with registration issue, because the Chinese government, the national law say any funeral business need to register with both the business bureau and the civil affairs bureau. So, and all business obviously have to register with business bureau. So the problem is, like I said earlier, civil affairs bureau, are civil affairs bureau at a different level. They directly benefit from the profit in funeral parlors. So then they have very little incentive to to let those funeral brokers who are potential competitors over certain uh, business items and uh, products and services. So they just have no incentive to legal to to give them to allow them register. So doing my so in my when I did my field work in roughly in twenty ten, um, Shanghai was one of the four province or special administration that actually legalized Shanghai actually was the first legalized funeral broker so basically the way they legalized funeral brokers to have the trade association 
kind of provide training session, which is like a two day training session. And I went to one of, I went to like one one set of training session on that 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 time that two day training session. Uh, and 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 then if you you you. If like full attendance, it basically give you qualification for uh for to receive the work permit. So uh, so the 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 legalization, it's it's really the bar is pretty low. It's not like a school, not like a training certificate. It's really kind of just it's their way to kind of just legalize funeral broker. And they told me, oh, this is because it's to satisfy consumer need. So there, but but that that itself can can. You can see kind of it's already how there's kind of these the between legality and illegality, but not just like that. So after legalization, so there's no legality issue for Shanghai at least, but then they're also morally ambiguous. So that essentially that kind of tackle directly uh, what they do, what funeral broker do. So in effect, many funeral brokers told me funeral brokerage business. Essentially, it's about information access. So, what do I mean by that? Because funeral parlors are state monopoly, right? So everyone know eventually you go to funeral parlor, but funeral so funeral brokers' job is to basically form some sort of contractual relationship with the bereaved before the bereaved goes straight to funeral parlor. To, because bereaved, they in, uh, can go to funeral parlor to make a old funeral arrangement themselves. Of course, bereaved might not want to do that, especially if they only have two days. They have so many other things they want to do. They actually there's a they, there's indeed a real consumer need to to hire someone to to do that thing for you, so you you can use the your two three days to manage other things. But yes, in theory, bereaved can go to uh, funeral um, parlor directly. So. In that case, so so for funeral broker, their key is to to get information access to know who just died, who are in need of hiring a funeral broker. So, and how do you build information access? There are many ways. So, in some ways, are uh, as you can imagine, it's like you ask friends, friend, right? So it's kind of interpersonal network. Okay, so that's one way. That's pretty understandable. But there's also another way to to build information access is through paid informants, and, and there are many kind of paid informants. One kind is like you. Um, so so in my book, I talk about funeral broker kind of work like an ambulance chases. So really, like one type of funeral uh, uh, paid informant is those uh, those people who. Um, who drove ambulance car, right? So you know, especially if a death already occurred, then the ambulance driver can uh, can call a funeral broker and say, "Hey, you know, I'm on my way, and there, there's like a dead body here." But then the most controversial one um, I talk about in my book is just some is some it's it's a category called watchers, dingong. So it's basically is a broker will hire unemployed people. Just hang out at hospital. And the, the watcher, they, they know which floor you should go to hang out because you know that's where the death is most likely to occur. So basically, these watchers, they just kind of hang out in hospital, walk around, and then as soon as they saw some sort of, they saw a death occur, they call a funeral broker, say, hey, the, the room and the bed, four or five, someone just died. Come here, quick. So, so, 
and in fact, basically the 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 so in that case, and then the then basically then the then the broker will can and try to talk to the bereaved and you know, and sometimes bereaved hire them. Although this this is harder to this way of doing business is a little bit harder. So um, but it's still possible, but. In effect, the the bereaved and the funeral broker in this case will enter commodity exchange, right? So you, when they don't know each other and they decide that the bereaved hire the funeral broker to do to arrange funeral for the bereaved. So they then they have they they have these monetary exchanges. This is in effect it's a commodity exchange. Well, then the interpersonal network, like, so, okay, I, I introduce my friend's friend, in, uh, and then, so this, in effect, is, it's the funeral broker, you kind of intermediate, or, or it's a direct friend, you enter this kind of gift exchange with the bereaved. Okay, so it sounds like very clear cut, but my point is, the point of my book is to say, it's, and it, it it feels like oh the commodity exchange one must be the immoral one or at least amoral, but then the interpersonal network one is the moral one, right? Because you have this kind of social relationship building. It's it's, it's about reciprocity. But I um in my book I talk about this kind of relationship are a lot more complicated, right? For example, the commodity exchange very often that's the 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 kind of the morally problematic uh, chain actually happen. It's between the watcher. Very often, it's the watcher tip off multiple funeral broker, and then for the interpersonal network part. Again, it's so there. It's a it's a usual practice that uh, if I introduce my friend to do funeral with a broker, I got a cut. I got come. I got kick. Basically, I I'm a little bit hesitant to call it a kickback because when you say kickback, is you assume there's a commission, but it's just no law regulate here, so it's both kickback and commission. So I would just say I got a cut. So so basically, so even though similarly, just like reciprocal exchange between friend introducing friend, but the, the introducer who is the friend. Of the bereaved, got a cut of the profit from funeral broker, while the introducer, the friend, might give those cut back to the bereaved. But that's the introducer, her her own his own decision. Funeral broker had an obligation to give the broker, uh, sorry, to give introducer that cut that that the commission that keep back. So I'm trying to say this. So. It's all these different things. Make funeral brokers are just legally, morally ambiguous. They are they are certain in certain condition. They are outright immoral in certain condition. They're morally problematic. It's just, it's it's really hard to pinpoint and to draw the line. So so in the in the these these group of morally ambiguous people, the funny things, the irony is. The state, when I say market, they resonance with market governance, right? It's because they really act like this self-motivated entrepreneur who who try their best to 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 find a to to expand their business. But that's 
exactly, but the state actually did not want those people act like market subject. If anything, the state actually really wanted everything outside of state to be kind of just based on reciprocity. But then the, the legalization in some way create this dilemma. So on the one hand, say, okay, by legalizing it, you are essentially say, funeral broker and the, the bereaved can only enter commodity professional exchange, right? But on the other, you condemn their attempt to generate profit. So on the other, the state say, oh, they should really do these things for kind of out of uh, uh, helping people, altruism for serving the people. So so they really got, these broker really got put into this impossible, fragile position. And, 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 and the irony here, so the second irony is, so so the first irony is they became market subject, even though the state did not want they became sub, become, the state did not want them to become market subject. The second irony here is they these amoral people actually brought religious morality back to uh, funeral parlor. So so in in China, funeral parlors are public space. So China has this law that public space uh, should be secular. Um, so uh, so only religious space can have religion. So technically, it is illegal to have religious activity in funeral policy. So it is it is kind of one of the legally gray area, but but because the funeral brokers, they are, they, the way they can make profit is from these folk custom items, which are basically religious products and services. That when I say religions, they are associated with the idea of spirit and afterlife, with all these things. So in effect, they open up a space for um, religious ritual to to uh, return and in fact to, to be normalized, to be routinized in state funeral parlors. So yeah, that's so. So in my book, in this chapter, I, I really talk about. I kind of I talk about how fragility, both as kind of an asset of these who, these these broker feel kind of they are they are insecure, they are constantly at risk, and 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 and, and then uh, but also fragility as this kind of a very fragile structural position. That fragility is the condition of market subjectivity and, uh, and and then i also specifically talk about how these for the this kind of moral ambiguity in fragility so i i, I think fragility is a key uh, concept to understand uh kind of this formation of market subjectivity under authoritarian market economy because really the most effective way to i mean in under authoritarianism Law is often the most powerful weapon of the state. So the way to kind of try to create space outside of the state, so law is not going to work. So it's I talk about is to do these kind of in some way morally ambiguous behavior that sometimes that anthropologists will have very tough time to see how you know you can cheer for you know those behavior those people but it was exactly the same logic like in my chapter i talk about temple use this logic of uh, playing the edge ball ngo use the these practice of playing the edge ball as a way to get around the legal constraint to really create 
space. So, so in in the Fofino Broker, the space they create is religious morality, religious ritual to let to bring us back to Fino Parlor. That's supposed to be a secular space. Right. Fascinating. Again, <laughs> you know, the, the more you, you, you describe this work and the, the people that are involved, right, in the formation of subjectivity, it's, uh, you know, it's so intricate and, and so fascinating. <laughs> and, you know, I think they're, they're, uh, the second part, right, of the book, uh, as you said, it's more ethnographic uh, in a way. And, uh, you know, we, we get uh, more details about the rituals and, um, right, how the how death rituals are shaped by governance and its intended and unintended consequences to understand how rituals construct the self, um, but, you know, specifically of the, the bereaved, but also the dead bodies, right? And um, in that case, chapter four, Individualism Interrupted, uh, gives us more time to understand the logic behind personalized funerals and the construction of the dead as individuals, um, right? Because we, we feel a little bit the paradox there in a way, right? The it, the individual and the dead, right? And um, I, I think, um, and, you know, I was curious about this, that the forces uh, at play there and you know, my question was, how is the notion of individualism playing in favor or sometimes in disfavor of the market and, and the state? Yeah. So this, yeah, this is so it's kind of circling back to one of the, my assumptions. I, I thought, oh, I'm going to find a lot of strong desire for personalized funeral, um, if not already popularized, but uh, really I saw the absence of it. But what's actually more surprised me is... Um, so the next chapter, I will talk about the core of the urban Chinese funeral. But what I'm more surprised is the state, the, and not just like a Shanghai government, it's like a Chinese national state, that they actually really try to promote more modern, they, they in their imagination, more modern form of commemoration. So I went to one of those uh, 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 like national conference about modern death ritual so and then so the the whole chapter the whole first part of the chapter i talk about one of the presentation that uh actually the presenters from taiwan she share her experience of organizing a uh, uh, very personalized stuff you know she share like three different cases so in, in the, by analyzing one particular case of her presentation i talk about the the the, the chinese states uh uh imagination of what modern funeral should be right it's this very personalized idea like so it should be um, really commemorate the dead as like unique individual that focus on the authenticity of the commemoration so there were the 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 whatever ritual you did uh it should kind of authentically uh, represent who the deceased was, and then the, the these kind of the the the, the and, and also kind of the the unique the different characteristic between different individuals is really you you see that 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 by analyzing that personalized the funeral like I really I, I I talk about how this I this imagination of kind of individual was imagined really, and then. In fact, and then I talk about how the the Chinese uh, government official, like in, in, in Beijing and in different parts, they all talk about the future of Chinese ritual. It should be personalized, if you know. 
And then so I, though that's really so I was like I was like, but then why didn't exist? And I will talk about why didn't exist a little bit later. Uh, but then. Then also, then I went through like the. Then I talk about like, okay, then what happened at the beginning of the Cultural Revolution?、Uh, after the Cultural Revolution, and so I realized that oh, the Chinese government actually、um, do not want people to have memorial meetings. Ah,、uh, they want to.、Um, part the reason is so for proper Communist Party member that ah,、uh, the. Ritual by definition is waste of money. So really, ideally, is you you don't have any ritual because the point is about commemorating the spirits. Ah,、uh, so that's kind of the national policies there. But obviously, the 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 specific uh uh practice is it's it's local. It's based on local practice. So at the local level, basically, in Shanghai Funeral Parlor, decide that um. Uh, there, there's no point to to do away with memorial meeting, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Ah,、uh, but so, but they the Shanghai government also realized, but you know, just memorial meeting itself, you don't have a lot of product to sell, a lot of service you can add, and there's always these dangerous line to pursue more religious product and ritual. So they feel like okay, the safest、uh, an option. Is how do you kind of balance the demand of the civil governance of death, uh, uh, also the market governance of death? Is you promote this personalized the funeral? So, um, in my book, I talk about how, like the 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 Shanghai Funeral Parlor has these all different idea, like what they can do. They have different package to promote personalized the funeral, but really, like there was. Very few in like interest in doing these things. So the second part of that chapter, I talk about all these countless business meeting that I set through. I set through the business the those meeting between state funeral parlor worker and the bereaved, and also um the uh the private funeral broker and the bereaved. Just you know, just listen to Lancy. How they make funeral arrangement? What are the kind of questions that the bereaved ask, or what are the kind of thing the bereaved demand? Like, really, they just I I don't really recall any demand. Say, oh, I I want more individuality. I want something completely out of norm. Uh, uh. In fact, people have very strong desire to follow social convention, and the, specifically. I'm talking about social convention based on religion, which is really at the core of those business meeting. And for every business meeting, they spend majority of time to go through these different uh, uh, religious, these folk custom items. So, like the clothes, the 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 urn、uh, uh, you choose, like what do they symbolize? All these items are associated with. Uh, spirits in afterlife, so that's really kind of the the important, the most important part of the business meeting. And then the second part, the kind of more at the margin of those business meeting, is the secular socialist idea of person and death, which in fact their their importance will be reversed in in the actual ritual. But in the business meeting,、uh, its religion um, um, play the biggest part. But at the end of the day. It's I don't they I just uh uh 
I I didn't see the bereaved very de- express desire to have this very personalized commemoration, and and I talked to funeral people who work at the funeral parlors, and they also say, yeah, it's actually not many people want a personalized funeral, and uh, they also have very little incentive to promote because the reason funeral parlor worker had even though that's what the the manager, the opera, the reader wanted to do. Or, and they also, they can tell you that's also future should be. They would tell you, it's, sometimes people are not there yet. And the reason funeral broker, uh, sorry, funeral pilot would not uh, propose these very personalized funeral is it's after marketization. Funeral pilots, in fact, the whole funeral industry uh, kind of was tainted with the name of profiteering, which is partly true. Uh, so, um, then for grassroots funeral parlor workers, if you want to make sure your business, your your sales meeting goes well, you need to make the bereaved trust you, right? You don't want the bereaved right in the beginning saying, "Ha ha, you just want to trick me to buy more things." So you try to follow convention as much as possible. Right? That's what people do, you know. This is a, this is the conventional practice. This is this. And in fact, the bereaved also constantly ask, what's the usual, like, you know, for example, the, the state practitioner, or in fact, even the business meeting with the broker, the bereaved is the same. So they would say, oh, there's these three three kind of hearse. Like, uh, what what kind do you want? And then these three kind of come with three different price range. And bereaved very often, what's the most common kind? <laughs> like, so but my point is, the, the irony here is, for the state, uh, 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 at the ideological level in the funeral parlor, they think marketization, uh, in the logic of marketization makes sense to have this kind of, to commemorate that as individual. But it is exactly this process make both the bereaved and funeral professional have very little incentive to sell per- personalized funeral. And the bereaved also did not want to personalize the funeral because any suggestion about that will make the bereaved feel like, are you trying to trick me? So the the again, we here we see another form of a dissonance. And I talk about how marketization not only did not bring about market subjectivity, if anything, marketization itself actually prevent the the likelihood to kind of have these market subjectivity to commemorate the debt as market subject. So yeah, so that's kind of the 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 irony about these personalized uh, 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 the what I call individualism interrupt <laughs> by marketization. So we always assume individualism and marketization they go together, but actually <laughs> marketization interrupt individualism. Yeah, it was very, very surprising because, you know, I shared the same assumption. And then, you know, reading the, the chapter, I thought like, yeah, it makes sense. But, you know, like it's uh, we wouldn't have thought um, otherwise. Right. Um, and I think uh, also um, uh maybe slight tension we can see in chapter five uh, entitled dying socialist and capitalist shanghai um right because the the position uh, the, the chapter positions the socialist subject in some sort of opposition with the more market-oriented reality in shanghai in in the 21st century 
And, um, you know, there's this intersection between memorial meetings, the socialist citizen subject and different discourses of the self. And, you know, I wanted to to hear a little bit more about that intersection. Mm-hmm, yeah, I actually mentioned memorial meetings several times, but I actually haven't really talked about what memorial meetings are. Other than that's when uh, that's basically when and where people commemorate the debt as model socialist citizen. So basically, um, traditional de- Chinese death ritual is all about creating, about transforming the debt into ancestor, take care, look after its afterlife, and and uh, 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 and, and so on and so forth. So memorial meetings, on the other hand, it's a secular civil ritual. It actually was. Um, kind of modeled after um, like American style of this memorial service, except that there's no Christianity. Right? So that was kind of the initial idea of what memorial meetings are. In, in under the Republican of China, uh, uh, they, they have this concept of well, uh, uh, public um, sacrifice, gongzi, or public commemoration. Uh, and so it's it's usually kind of reserved for a political leader and and, 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 and just famous people. And, and in fact, it very often happen as like a addition to uh, the traditional death ritual. So, but the memorial meeting. So, uh, uh, it's so in that case, it's an invented a secular civil ritual, and it was never popularized during the Republican era. And the surf the people speech that I mentioned in the beginning, so that's like my uh, informant say like right this is the Bible to urban to Chinese death ritual. So surf the people speech is the is the first speech that uh, 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 told people uh, 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 Mao Zedong wrote the speech to say oh we should. Uh, the people we should commemorate uh, uh, comrades in, in, in memorial meeting. Uh, so uh, so now I actually want to talk about memorial meeting a little bit more. So memorial meeting itself is really, really short. This is only a couple of steps. So you have an MC kind of say this is the beginning of the ritual and then play the dirge like for, uh, they say 30 seconds, but never really 30 seconds. And then when the dirge was played, people, everyone kind of remained silent. Uh, and then after the dirge is played, and then you bow to the uh, uh, deceased uh, uh, body and picture three times, and then you have a work unit representative uh, give a memorial speech, and then you have the bereaved give a thank you speech, mm-hmm. and then then uh, then people do some. I, I call it a farewell ceremony. So basically, it's participants form smaller group, and then each group to say goodbye to the dad, and then say goodbye to the bereaved family, and then then the whole thing is done. The in fact, the whole thing is done within fifteen minutes. Memorial meetings is a really really short, and the uh. uh you know, in my chapter on memorial meeting, uh, I, 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 I titled "Dying Socialists." Right. So, what what do I mean by dying socialists? Is this memorial meeting uh, the 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 key, the the defining step of memorial meeting? It's the memorial speech given by work unit representative. So, what do I mean by that? So, funeral broker, uh, not just funeral broker, like funeral professional, would tell me that. If a funeral 
that looks like a memorial meeting, but they do not have a work unit or the equivalent of a work unit representative. So like someone from a Jew or way, like a neighborhood association, if they don't have that kind of people who gave a memorial speech, then technically that kind of funeral is not a memorial meeting. They say uh, in Shanghai, they call that kind of funeral memorial service. So, so in that case, really work units, memorial speech is the defining characteristic of a memorial meeting. You can have exactly the same speech, but if it's not read by a work unit representative, then it's not a memorial meeting. So in that case. So that's the first layer of this. What I mean by socialist is this connection to whether we're talking about work union or neighborhood association. Those are grassroots organizations that directly tie the individual to the party state. And prior to the introduction of market economy time, they have tremendous power in shaping everyday private life decisions. And after introduction of market economy, they they did not have those powers, which I will circle back to that part. But then also, the the key thing, the memorial speech and the thank you speech, they are very identical. They 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 use very similar narrative device. So I talk about the kind of narrative device is they they use they constantly use what I call socialist narrative of time, person, and ethic. So what do I mean by socialist narrative of time? So the way they refer time. So for example, if someone was born before 1949, then you say, oh, this person was born before liberation, right? They call 1949 as the time of liberation. So that's what, or or they would talk about uh, uh, someone was born in old society, which capitalized the O and capitalized the S, because it's not just... The, the way they conceptualize time is not just kind of passing, kind of generic time. It's a specific way of imagining past as some sort of feudalist superstition that got liberated by Communist Party in the main, you know, in, in under liberation. It's the new China. So that's what I mean by this socialist narrative time. It's, that's the way when you they talk about time, it's, all, it's always these... Uh, the 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 narrative the the phrase that Chinese Communist Party used and same with person so for example like the cat the identity category like a peasant or workers or obviously if someone used to be a landlord it did not get mentioned because it's not a prestigious category but if like a a peasant or worker those prestigious categories always got mentioned but then also ethics so that's an interesting part. So we totally can understand that people say good things about the dead, right? It's pretty common cross-culturally. But then the interesting things is what are the kind of ethics were mentioned? I um I recently uh, discussed this particular article with my student at George Mason. My students are talking about they really like emphasize the suffering, how much they suffer. I say, yeah, because of the kind of ethics that talk about is like talk about how the bereaved was very fragile, you know, Dina enduring bitterness and 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 and, and, the, and the, so there could potentially many different ethics, good things you can say about the deceased, but the kind of only ethics that got evoked in these in these two speeches is those ethics that are matched with kind of uh, 
uh, idealize the Communist Party member ethics. And so uh, like many of them kind of uh, early on kind of match with it, kind of this imagination of what person should be. So I think frugal and then devotion in doing bitterness and so on and so forth. So I talk about this socialist narrative. And then as a part of this socialist narrative, I also talk about the other side of these memorial meetings is this very modernist bodily movement. So I specifically talk about two things. One is bowing. So the whole point of memorial meeting in the first place under uh, Republican government is, uh, but in definitely also continue under Chinese Communist Party is traditional death ritual is about prostration. And prostration is kind of this bodily enactment of a hierarchy, right? But then they, for this new kind of ritual, that they, they consider that you cannot prostrate. That's too feudalistic. You should bow, and the bow itself kind of, kind of um, show this kind of uh, equality between people and, and not just between the deceased. So you show respect to the, the deceased through bowing, but it's not this kind of hierarchical, uh, like a prostration, like the uh, uh, subject um, prostrating itself to an emperor or to an imperial government official, and so on and so forth. So so there's this but uh, in the, the whole, in fact, if you prostrate, like there were times that when so the second thing I want to talk about is grief. In memorial meetings, memorial meeting, you have to be calm and, and, and solid, the whole thing. So if you cry, if you just cry a little bit and people could not really hear you, it's fine. But if you cry out loud and, and even if you like nail down, not necessarily prostrate, but you just nail down on the floor, like the, the funeral professionals were like, they were panicked and then like, if it's a broker, they were usually a little bit nicer. They would say, oh, you cannot do that. It's inappropriate. And I saw Steve, you know, Paula work. Like, like it really felt like he was yelling at the brave He like ran into the middle of the meeting hall and say, oh, that's really inappropriate. You should stand up. You should have, like kneel down on the floor. So, but it's like all these is a part of this very modernist bodily movement. So, so in that case, so I talk about how memorial meeting represent this kind of idealized socialism, right? But at this point, it still represent. That's how they project. But then the key things, the key turning point for me is the memorial meeting actually were never popularized in the past. So, and in fact, like I said, before Cultural Revolution, uh, whatever the policy they were doing, they did try to promote memorial meeting, uh, but it was just by persuasion. So, um, and, and not to mention the major form of intimate still body barrier. So, and, so then how did the memorial meeting become popularized? And then that's the key. And then eventually stay. It turned out, at least in Shanghai, what happened is, when the Cultural Revolution happened, people in those two crematoria, they did not really know what to do. There was actually no ritual. I have, like, people I talked to, like, he he worked during those times. He said, in the very beginning, people really didn't know what to do because, you know, whatever you did in the past, you were no longer, you could not do it anymore. So in the beginning, what people did is they, he called it, just they just come to have a look and have a cry. 
and then they they send the body to to the to to the crematorium unit and to cremate the body. And he said memorial meetings, like as the current form that really um, became popularized in Shanghai, it's it's because uh, the need for rehabilitation. So basically, what happened is during these times. Um, if you are so now circling back to surfler people, surfler people that speech really tell you right. If you are, uh, 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 if you are a proper communist party uh, uh, subject, right, then you are that. No matter how humble you are, no matter what kind of job you do, you deserve a memorial meeting. But if you are counter revolutionary, if you are rightist, your death was not worth to be commemorated. So. That's what was said in in surfler people's speech, and they do it at the beginning of the Cultural Revolution. It's the same thing. If you were politically, if you were kind of, if you were labeled as counter revolutionary, when you die, like, well, in some cases, the bereaved didn't even know. But it, even if the bereaved didn't know, you you could not have funeral for those counter revolutionaries. So, but then, what if that person got rehabilitated, which does happen, especially these kind of the the cultural revolution, the the shift of the label actually shifted a lot more frequently. So, unless you are a very famous big political leader, that takes longer. But at these kind of very local level, there was a lot of these back and forth. In order to make sure that you are rehabilitated, even you already died, it's you, it's the the deceased, the last work unit to organize a, a memorial meeting for the deceased. So, no matter, so the content of the speech could be generic, and individual bereaved might make the work unit, might negotiate the content with the work unit. But at the end of the day, what you what you need to have is to have a work unit to give a memorial to 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 read this memorial speech. Even if this speech is identical to all the other speech, the fact of having this really rehabilitate, reestablish you as a person. And in that particular context, person is citizen. It's a political. The way to be person is to be a citizen. And the the two things really merge together. The only way to be a person is to be a proper socialist citizen. So, um, by the same token, no matter how how like how good you were when you were you you when you were uh, still alive when you die if the deceased did, uh, sorry if the work unit did not give you a memorial meeting like did not send someone to read a memorial speech to you that in fact deny your 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 personhood so it so I always talk so in in this chapter I talk about how. Memorial meeting in 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 the in China, the, the this political label is not just attached to individual; it's attached to the whole family. So once a, a dead person got rehabilitated, he his her whole family would be able to be rehabilitated. And which means, once you got rehabilitated, your descendant then will resume their 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 right to job entitlement, right to food stamp, to all these things. So, so in some way, memorial meeting can 
grant the prosperity to the design even more than the the traditional dance ritual could. Anyway, but it it is through this power to rehabilitate. That's how memorial meeting became popularized. So I I talk about these. It is through that that the way memorial meeting popularizing Shanghai. That I argue that memorial meeting create not just represent、uh, socialist citizenship, but actually create socialist citizen.、Mm-hmm. Absolutely.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry. So, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. The one last bit. Is, the irony is that's what people still do today. After two, three decades, three decades of marketization, when we know clearly, work units did not have that power affect people's daily life. When we know clearly, people's everyday life has is everything but idealized the socialist utopia, right? So that world is very far away from everyday life, but that's the way they want to commemorate the death. So, kind of circling back to the last piece of the puzzle is then, what does that mean to create socialist citizens in this kind of market economy, right? What does that mean when you have all these different values? So I talk about dissonance in that regard. Is it is. The moment when people perform memorial meeting, like when everyone pretend we live in an idealized socialist world, and when everyone is pretend to be a model socialist citizen, it's the moment you realize that oh, your everyday life, it's definitely not idealized socialist world, right? So that in effect it denaturalizes your everyday reality. So. It's not a form of resistance, but it is a form of a dissonance to make you kind of、um, be reflexive of what you take for granted as your everyday life. So yeah, so I think that's really the the last piece of this is this dissonance, this dying socialist in capitalist Shanghai that create this reflect moment of reflection to realize that. You know, maybe you have never lived in a world of idealized socialist world, right? But the, the only way you know is when you pretend to be living a, an idealized socialist world. So, this is kind of what I talk about the, in terms of the dissonance between these、uh, um, socialist idea、mm-hmm. in the world of the ritual and everyday reality, which is not socialist, or or I should say, socialist is just to play a part of the role. Absolutely, yeah.、Um, and again, I mean, you know, this is all,、um, you know, music to my ears. But you know, I do want to be cognizant of of time, and I don't want to take too much of your time.、Um, but you know, I I, I can't、uh, can't stop myself, but you know, to to ask questions about you know chapter six and seven, and then conclusions. And you know, in chapter six,、uh, dying religious in a socialist ritual, right? We we have the、um, the conversation is open about the idea of religious aspects. That are integrated into the memorial meetings, and、um, you know this complicates further the book's analysis of the self, right? The self of the dead and the self of the bereaved, and you know just just very briefly, I was I was wondering how are the rituals changing themselves and changing ideas of the self?、Mm-hmm. Yeah.、Um, so basically,、uh, doing my fieldwork, what people did. Is the majority of funeral is immediately after memorial meeting, they perform、uh, another set of 
um, ritual that's really resonant with kind of traditional uh, death ritual in the sense that it's about it's based on the assumption of spirits and afterlife and ancestor and, and and so on and so forth. So there's a whole set of ritual that has been routinized immediately. And that will happen immediately after memorial meetings, and the and and the doing these like uh, these post ritual that the deceased was conceptualized as ancestor embedded in this kind of reciprocal exchange that has spirits and afterlife, and occasionally I talk about uh there's also less routinized ritual that occasionally happen uh, um that that often uh, during at least in my field work that often associate with kind of stronger Buddhist characteristic that they might uh, in, in one they might use the Dharana flag or or they add um, uh, a set of Buddhist they have monks or they have Buddhist chant and chanting ritual and, and in my uh, field work I noticed that at least the few the cases I saw they they tend to be associated with abnormal deaths. So um, I think because the fact that they are, those are abnormal deaths, that so um, the bereaved feel stronger need to get to have like extra uh, uh, religious ritual to kind of manage the spirits and the spirits transition into afterlife. And a lot of those Buddhist ritual uh, that could happen after memorial meeting, but some of sometimes they always, they try to happen. Uh, before the memorial meetings. So the key here is uh, uh, I talk about, I, I, I use book as the analogy of understand uh, 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 contemporary urban Chinese death ritual, right? So basically what happened is you'll have these, uh, these book on secular socialism. So in, in, in the content of this book, the deceased was conceptualized as a model socialist citizen, who deny recognition of spirit and afterlife, but then in the purpose, especially in the appendix of the book, then the disease became a religious and relational subject, religious uh, relational subject with spirits and afterlife, and relational subject that's embedded in this different reciprocal exchange, both between the living and the dead, and also uh, uh, among the livings. So uh, in, in in I talk about so how how is it possible you can you can have even though the 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 content of the book so the socialist idea of person is based on the denial of these religious and relational idea of person but they coexist in one single ritual all in state funeral parlor so I talk about these so what make these these kind of similarly incommensurable idea of person and death become commensurable. So I talk about the key here. Well, there's also the key. One of the key I talked about earlier is the role of funeral broker, right? They kind of open up the space. But for the ritual here specifically, the key here is because uh, people who perform this ritual, they tend to treat performing rituals, they just following social convention. And so there are so many social conventions. And a lot of these social conventions, they contradict to each other. But it doesn't matter because for them, the goal is to follow social convention. So here, 
I want to address that I'm not just talking about the difference between belief and practice, because you can follow social convention of this different idea, and you do have belief. Because some people say, "Oh, you're just talking about the difference between belief and the、uh, and the practice."、Uh, that's actually not what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say is the 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 belief could match the practice, or but the the point is. There is no need to say, "Oh, I have to see if this social convention they are whether they are logically coherent, whether they are they authentically represent what I believe or what I do." It's those are they could be there, but that's not the prerequisite. The the key point for those people is they feel the need to follow this social convention. Well, they could believe those social convention. They don't have to be, and.、Um, But the 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 key point here is the social convention, because then it contrasts to the next chapter, uh, which uh, actually, do you want to let me maybe let me stop here so you can <laughs> sure. I mean, you know, for for the next chapter, pluralism. Pluralism interrupted. You know, my question was just about the type of governance,、uh, about you know, relation to to rituals. But you know, I mean, you can continue your your train of thought into chapter seven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so the chapter seven basically talk about different kind of.、Uh, I talk about uh, uh, um, Protestant versions of memorial meetings. Um, basically, uh, so. It's built on this、uh, idea of memorial meetings, and they, there's also definitely a set of ritual they perform immediately after、uh, memorial meeting. But the key here is for Protestant.、Uh, so in that regard, there's also some degree of pluralism here. This very different, almost contradicting idea of person.、Uh, So the disease could be kind of model socialist worker, and also a wife or a mother, and also like a good Christian. But the key here is for Protestant versions. Uh, the key difference is very often, a Protestant pastor would try to fight to be the MC of a funeral,、uh, versus all the other kind. They usually just have funeral professionals to be the MC of the funeral. So when funeral professionals are the MC of the funeral,、um, they don't talk much. They really just facilitate. They just tell you,、oh, okay, this is time to do this.、Uh, funeral broker might say a word or two, a little bit more to show kind of more respect, to kind of create create some sort of rhythm.、Uh, but really, very few words.、Uh, but when pastors or the MC of these funerals. The pastor add like singing in the beginning, add a praise, and in fact,、uh, not just in the beginning, but also every step of memorial meeting that I talked about earlier, added like praying here, add a singing there, and the, so, so if we think about my book metaphor that I talk about in the last chapter, is so the last chapter I talk about a book of socialism has religious appendix. And uh, uh, and profess, especially appendix is really wrong, right? But the Protestant versions basically, it's 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 what pastor try to do is add a more a profess and a more appendix, but also in the content part, like every step, like try to insert Christian Christianity in between, in like in the content part as well. So it's not just about adding profess and appendix. What pastor try to do 
is to rewrite the book. In fact, I have a quote from a pastor. He literally told me that the the the, the whole point of having、uh, a pastor to be the MC, so it's so they can encase the original framing of memorial meeting with Christianity. Like he literally used that word to describe uh, 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 what they did. It's 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 not just like adding prophets and appendix. It's really it's to rewrite the socialist book. So I asked him. So why, like, why did you want to do that? So it turned out it's because for these Protestant versions of memorial meetings, memorial meetings are for、uh, they're for proselytizing, so to convert people into Christianity. So, the, so he say the pastor told me the issue here is for uh, uh, at least for、uh, their kind of Christianity.、Um, what the belief did or did not do would not affect the salvation of the deceased. What do I mean by that? So, if the deceased accept Jesus before the deceased pass away, then the deceased would already be saved, right? So. What the deceased,、uh, the bereaved did or did not do. So even if the bereaved did a like a traditional funeral, if the deceased already accepted Jesus, then the deceased was saved. The deceased will be in heaven with God. Right. So in that case, for Christian, for Protestant version of memorial meeting, it's really not about the salvation of the deceased, which was really what all the other kind of funeral was about. Right. They want to do ritual to make sure. The deceased spirits go to a specific place, and so on and so forth. So, in that case, for Protestant versions of memorial meeting, it's really for the living, and、uh, to come for the bereaved. Yeah, that's part of it, but also to pass the message, Jesus' message. It really did. The the pastor told me, you know, memorial meeting is the time that it's the only time, not the only time. It's one of the few times that you got a chance to. To encounter with a group of people that you otherwise would not have access to, if you, and so therefore, this is a great chance to 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 proselytize. So, so、uh, that's why the pastor need to reframe this memorial meeting with this different Christian、uh, message, and 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 then talk about like who Jesus was and what Jesus did, and and so on and so forth. So, in proselytization, I mean, in effect. It entail the need to be authentic, right? So, if the deceased was a Christian, then you need to authentically represent the Christian uh, 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 as、uh, as Christian, and 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 so 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 what these kind of what we see the change happen is authenticity and sincerity became more important. In uh, in in defining uh what a funeral should be, you still perform ritual, you still perform stylized thing, but that stylized ritual should come from should be authentic, it should be sincere, uh 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 with like who the deceased was and what the bereaved believe who the deceased was, or at least by changing what the bereaved believe. So in other words, the 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 the, the these the the. The power of authenticity and sincerity became more important than just following social convention. So, and I talk about how 
we start seeing while the majority of Protestant version of memorial meeting, we still see kind of this pluralistic characteristic of commemorating the deceased as this pluralistic subject. This kind of funeral is also the kind that's most likely to have conflict. And during my time, it's especially the conflict between um, um, pastor, between the ch- between church and the work unit. So uh, because the work unit people um, at one particular conflict I talk about, they, they will be okay if all the Christian ritual happen after memorial meeting, but they don't want this Christian ritual happen like in between each step of a memorial meeting. Um, so basically what happened is, so for these, once the the sincerity and the, and the authenticity became an important principle of thinking about what ritual should be, then this different element, this complete competing, this contradicting element, even when they coexisted, in the same funeral, they are high, they are hierarchy. They need to be higher. They need the diff, their difference need to be prioritized. So, you can be Christian and socialist and other thing. Oh, that's fine, but you have to be Christian first. And that Christian framing, it's the overreaching framework that that uh, in case socialist idea of person, in case other like a Confucius idea of person, and so on and so forth. So. Ironically, I talk about how the the this kind of evangelical Protestant version in, in some way resonant with high socialism in the sense that they both demand people prioritize these different conflicting ethical idea of person and death. And and and, and, and obviously church does not have the power of the state, but but in, but they do have this kind of odd similarity in, in fact churches. In, in this case, they are the most likely to have conflict with the state. But they, but on the other hand, they share this similar idea of that when you have these conflicting ideas, it's important to prioritize it so they are consistent. Absolutely. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, I think with, with the addition of uh, Protestantism, right, the, the picture becomes even more... I mean, maybe not that much complicated, but definitely there's another layer, right, of considerations. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we, we have taken uh, a lot of your time already. So I was just wondering whether you could tell us about uh, your current projects. Uh, so uh, I really just start my current project. So um, so my current project on the surface look very different, but <laughs> I think logically they're the same. So my current project is about governing nature. So the new project that I just started is about governing nature. So instead of governing death, it's about governing nature. So specifically, um, um, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in understanding um, Chinese national part. So Chinese recent Chinese government uh, only recently established a national park system. So the most intriguing part of this is prior to that, China had like a nature reserve and China had a, a, a variety of protective area, kind of different plan. Uh, uh, and for a long time, scholar really treat kind of nature reserve as particular form of protected area as like equivalent of national park. So for like a comparative research into like people will compare like a nature reserve to like a national park in somewhere else. But then so the, so then the interesting part is then 
why did the Chinese government feel the need to? So, so these these establishment of national park is not some sort of new, new um, new commitment to environmentalism. Uh, it's a changing. Uh, it it show a change in how the government think about how nature should be governed. So yeah, so it then so what does that mean? So then so so I want to know like what does it mean to have this kind of in national park itself is a very American uh, idea. And the Chinese government actually specifically say they 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 are, they 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 they're creating this American national park with Chinese characteristic. So my new project is try to find out like what does that mean? Like and why at that time? What does it entail about this? Changing idea of governing nature in states' imagination and the relation to a um, different group of people, like people who work in those national parks, scholars, and just regular people who uh, I assume will consume national park as a tourist. So yeah, so so that's what my new project is gonna be, but it's really at a very very early stage. So sounds very very exciting. And, you know, even if it's just at the beginning, you know, I, yeah. I don't know, I wish it, you know, all the best. And I, I hope to see very soon, right, publications coming thank out of it. You. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for, for talking to us today, Dr. Leo. And, you know, looking forward to, uh, to having you again here. Yeah, thank <laughs> Yeah, I hope so. I hope I will have my second book coming over soon. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Yeah, thank thank you. you so much. Bye. Thank you.